We are in a sermon series on the topic of the books because the books is what the term the Bible means. The Bible means book, the books. And so what we have is that we think of it as one big unit, but it's really not. It's really two separate collections of books. The first collection is the Hebrew scriptures or what we might refer to as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And then the, uh, the second collection of books is what we call the Christian scriptures or some call it the, Old, the New Covenant or New Testament. But these two collections of books uh, all put together in the centuries following Christ's uh, time on earth and uh, bound together, we, uh, we've just stamped it the, the books or the Bible. And we've been kind of going through it starting with the Hebrew scriptures, which is the entirety of the sacred text for the Hebrew nation uh, and this, their story, it's their history. The Hebrew scriptures are their nation's story, their past, their development, their laws, their nation, their kings, their rulers, their ups, downs, highs, and lows. And we've been starting with the Hebrew scriptures because they come first chronologically and in the book, and we'll get to the Christian scriptures in our journey eventually. But uh, last, we're, uh, we've been spending some time in what we call the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or the, the law of Moses, or whatever, and the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in these books, you have the first one. We spent a lot of time in Genesis because it covers a lot of history prior to Moses' time alive. Just the backstory of the nation, of their ancestors and, and their patriarchs, and the world before that. And so it's a lot of human history in that one book. But then the next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that round out the Pentateuch, these four books all are in one generation. Just one generation. That's very different than Genesis, which covers a lot of time. These four books is one generation. It's all the days that Moses was alive. In fact, Exodus begins with the birth of Moses, and Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. And he is the one, humanly speaking, who is his leadership that, that causes them to write down these things. And what an amazing leader he is. We can go on and on about him, not just the deliverance end, but the, the priority of writing down their narratives and paying people to keep writing them down over and preserving the best ancient record of history that we have in the world. Uh, on top of the, uh, the system of governance that was set up, it's just an amazing life and leadership that Moses experienced in these books. So Exodus begins with the story of the Exodus. And if you were with us back in the beginning of January, we actually started the series, not with Genesis, but with the Exodus. We said two weeks talking about Moses' life, his amazing birth, growing up in privilege, becoming an exile, coming back under God's command, and leading the Israelites out of slavery through miraculous signs across the Red Sea and leaving their decimated captors behind them. And if you missed those two weeks and you want to find them, you go to our website uh, and um, on our sermons page, you can listen to or watch those from January 8th and January 15th. We started with Exodus, we went back to Genesis, and we're back to Exodus now. So Exodus 1-15 through is the story of the Exodus from slavery. The rest of Exodus, as well as Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, contain basically two things. They contain, first of all, a lot of cool stories and narratives. They also contain a whole lot of national laws and things to live by. So we're going to take this week and next week to finish off the Pentateuch, and we're moving on after that. After that, we're going to move into Holy Week with Palm Sunday and Easter and Good Friday and that kind of stuff. But for the next two weeks, we'll finish off the Pentateuch. 
And if you like the narratives the last few weeks, and I know many of you have, we're not going to do a narrative today, no stories today. We'll come back to that next week. But today we're going to look at the other part of the Pentateuch that's not a narrative but is worth talking about for a little bit together. And that is this. That after leaving the land of Egypt, leaving slavery, after many miraculous moments of deliverance, Moses led these people of Israel back to Mount Sinai where he was earlier when he was sent by God in a burning bush to be a deliverer brings them back and goes higher in the mountain to meet with God and to establish a set of national laws that would be used to govern the nation of Israel as they developed their newfound nation going forward. Now, it's such a big deal to understand this in context. These are people who never had a series of laws or self-government. They were slaves for the last 400 years. Everyone who was alive and their parents and grandparents and beyond were slaves as long as they knew, and they are now free. So prior to this, their law was at the end of the whip of their slave master. That was their law, do what you're told or else. Now they're all set free, and now they've got to figure out how to do something they've never had to do before, to operate as a civil society. And so Moses goes up and gets a set of national laws to bring them down and say, this is your marching orders. Here we are. This is what God wants us to do and how he wants us to operate. Now, it's always important to have a conversation about context when it comes to the Bible in general or anything in general. Context is always important and often underrated or understated. And especially when we discuss the scriptures. And this is very visible because we have a lot of Christians who've taken all of these books that make up the Bible and put them all together for these two collections and put them all together and stamped them as one big thing with equal weight to some obscure law in Leviticus, equal with John 3.16 and missing the point of, of what's going on contextually. It gets us into a lot of weird doctrines and a lot of abuses and bad things from the Crusades to religious fundamentalism to you name it. So, Context matters, and so I want to say something, and I'm going to take an intentional rabbit trail from our conversation today for several minutes to make this point. So I'm going to get off the highway with you so you know what we're doing. We're going to drive on a side road. We're going to get back on the highway in a minute here, but enjoy this with me, okay? Here we go. I have read, I have read the Hebrew Scriptures and the entirety of what we call the Bible. I've read all of it dozens of times in my lifetime. Since I was a teenager, I've made it my annual practice to read the Bible from cover to cover each year, and I've only taken a break from that about three times over the years to do something, try something different. So I've done this dozens of times. I won't tell you how many times because I'm pretty old, okay? But I've done it a lot. On top of that, and by the way, I'm right now in my personal reading right now for the year, I'm actually in Deuteronomy right now. It's riveting stuff, I tell you, riveting. And um, so anyhow, but as I go through this thing, personally, on top of that as a pastor, I've gotten into it over and over to, to study them. So for example, this week in preparation for this sermon, I also went back and reread Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy this week. Again, for the empty time. So there are like 613 laws given to this nation of Israel to govern themselves in these books. Okay, we think of the famous 10, you know, or whatever. There's 613 laws or edicts, plus countless oral traditions to help them obey them. But here's the bottom line. And here's my rabbit trail. Here's my detour. 
Here's the bottom line. No one follows or obeys these Hebrew laws today. And in case that's not plain enough, let me say it this way. No one really believes they're supposed to either. Okay? Now, I know that for some niche of religious people, they're like, oh, what are you saying? The Bible says. And, but they don't really believe that. It's just how, I'm just saying the quiet part out loud, okay? That's all I'm doing here. Um, because no one does. Some people like to say that when they lump the whole thing together because they want to reach into certain parts of this section to pull the obvious ones out as, as weighty. So therefore they can pull the other parts out that they want to use to, uh, to basically criticize or condemn culture and other people whose lifestyles they don't agree with. And so they reached in selectively to pull some out to say, the Bible says, but nobody, not any of us, and anyone I've ever met and I've had a conversation with them for more than, more than 10 minutes and they were honest, no one obeys them all or believes that they're supposed to. That's just the way it is. And I'm not going to spend more time saying that. Most of you are relieved to hear that whether you're skeptical or you're new to faith or you're young or whatever, or you've been in church a long time confused by the noise. If you meet people who do that kind of stuff, they're being, they're, what they're doing is they're picking and choosing. They are guilty of picking and choosing. And Christians are really good. Humans are really good. No matter what your belief systems are, with anything, including our politics, you name it, we're good at picking and choosing, okay? And it makes us hypocrites when we do that. It's a very dangerous game to play. So no one does this, and I'm not going to spend more time on that because the people who would push back on that are usually very religious people, and I've learned that I can't change someone's mind. People like that, they come to church and they say, if they like how the pastor does a sermon, they're like, attaboy, and if they don't, they send you an email. So I understand that's how that goes, and I, look, if, if you don't like religious people, stand in line, okay? I mean, they gave Jesus a pretty hard time, too, when he walked this earth, and he, you know, and he, as he did his thing, not the way they thought he should. But here's the deal. I am not here to, um, to answer that question for the pushback people. I'm here to tell all of us this, these laws matter in context, and I'm just saying the quiet part out loud, okay? So we do have responsibilities when it comes to the law, and I'll come back to those responsibilities later, not about this law, but about how we live as Christians. I'll come back to that in the end today. But for now, let's go back to the Hebrew people, and let's deal with context. When you read anything in life, including the scriptures, and especially the scriptures, you always ought to ask a couple questions. Who was it written to or spoken to, and why was it written or spoken to them? Who was it written to, and why? So in this case, the answer is it was written to the Israelites who were, they came into Egypt as a family, they left big and huge as a bunch of slaves now set free and forming a brand new nation. And these people are... Now God's given them government, as we all know people have to have to govern their society and themselves. And here we are. It was spoken to them and given to them for that reason. And they received a whole lot more than Ten Commandments, like some of us have heard of, but 613. I'm going to break these down into a few categories for the sake of simplicity. Um, we can summarize these 613 laws in these topics, ceremonial, civil, and moral. And I, I don't want to get off my rabbit trail again, but I would quickly want to say some people who really want to desperately cling to authority to pull some verses out of the Hebrew Scriptures and clobber other people they disagree with, with usually try to differentiate that we're not bound by certain kinds of laws, but we're bound by the moral laws still. And that's just, they're using a couple of New Testament verses very inaccurately to do that, to basically give them a blanket statement over the things they don't want to do, to hold up the things they do want to impose on others. It's just not, uh, 
It's not a good theology because the moral laws, no one obeys the moral laws that were given here to this day, either not you nor me. If you don't believe it, you, read it for yourself. But there are three categories, ceremonial, civil, and moral, and I can turn there and show you a bunch of illustrations, but we'd be here all day. And most of us, except for a few of us nerds, don't want to be here all day looking at 613 laws. So I'm going to summarize these categories for you without turning to a bunch of verses. But if you're the kind of person that says, oh, I think we should open them up the book and read them all, I want to give you some good news. You have the Bible just like me. It's not a secret book. So this week, go home and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy like I did this past week, and you're caught up to speed, okay? It's all there in our laps if we want it. But ceremonial laws in the law included things like their diseases. They had to have laws for health specifications and dealing with diseases, right? We don't like this sometimes, but almost every government in the history of the world has, um, put, has health measures in place to control public health. And sometimes we get mad about that kind of stuff today, but it was back in the Hebrew scriptures, they had health. I'm going to say, I'm going to say something, I'm going to step into a buzzword here, make everyone freak out here, but they had things like quarantines in the Hebrew scriptures even, believe it or not. They had health laws and practices for diseases and outbreaks and all sorts of stuff. It was part of their ceremonial laws. They had, um, they had, um, Festivals in their ceremonial laws. Religious feasts that they would get together to celebrate. They had um, religious customs in those days, which were people getting together and, um, um, you know, how to honor God, how to worship God, you know, and how to bring, you know, animal sacrifices or, or, or produce offerings to celebrate God's goodness and how, who was to offer them in what way and how you did the God thing. They also had dietary laws in there. To help them, and they were very nomadic people at that time, and they had laws to help them govern their, their stage of life. And then they had civil laws. Civil laws include laws such as, are you ready? Property. For example, if people own property with each other, guess what? You had to follow laws on how you sold that property, how you bought that property, how you exchanged that property. It mattered. Civil laws about redeeming property. Civil laws about uh, commerce, how you, can, how you did trade with each other, how you treated other people's cattle if something happened, how you did business with each other justly and fairly. And marital, how you, who you could marry and not, and if you wanted to get out of it, how you could do it, how you couldn't do it, how you were so responsible to be fair afterwards. All that kind of stuff was built into civil laws. Moral laws, which again, we think these are easy categories. The truth is most people who divide the laws into these three categories find it very difficult to agree on which one goes where because they all overlap. Many of the moral laws are ceremonial. Many of the civil laws are moral. It's all kind of a big soup, but we just try to make sense of a lot of laws. But moral laws included idolatry, how you treat other people, and consequences, which are sometimes very harsh. But I want to say this to you. These are some remarkable laws. So seriously, you ought to go home and read them. No matter where you are on your faith journey, you should read these books of the Pentateuch at least once in your lifetime, if not more. Just at least read them and see what's in them. Because what you'll find is, yes, there are some hard things to understand. There are some things that we might even call cringy today. But there are also some amazing forward-thinking ideas. I want to say this. When I read the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, I'm reminded that God has always been very progressive for the time in which he spoke. 
And we look back in, in, in 2023 and in the, in the, in with our Western views and sensibilities and things seem archaic or even barbaric sometimes. But when you were lit, if you've understood the time and the world, the way it was around them and the way people were treated as property and slavery and women's rights and, and, and people we don't agree with their lives, how people were treated in culture, and around them, God was very progressive in that time and in the Christian scriptures as well. And again, so you, you can't look back from today's vantage point, but in the time to see how God was working um, in the world with the people from where they were at. But they're all summed up in these laws. And you should read them. They're very interesting. They're very wise. This week I was reading some of Deuteronomy and I was like, man, that's such a good idea of how to settle this issue with between people and how to, how to navigate these relationships. And you miss that stuff if you don't pour yourself some coffee and wade through the parts that are not as interesting, you'll miss the good stuff as well. So I'd encourage you to read it sometime. But maybe read the gospel sections more, of course, right? Anyhow, we will look together at what we call the Ten Commandments today on the screen. The Ten Commandments are the most famous ones. These are the ones that some, you know, American Christians say should be in the court, front of every courthouse in America, you know, somehow, which is an interesting conversation. But, you know, the Ten Commandments are the big famous ones, right? And here's the deal. We're going to look at them, and I'm going to do one nerdy thing before I look at them with you. And most of you ain't going to care about this, but a few of you, you're going to want to talk to me later if, you, if this interests you. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but they were first given in Exodus 20. And it's the same list, but it's interesting that different people, different religious groups that value these writings number them differently. So, for example, you have the Catholics have Ten Commandments, but they number them one way. The, the non-Catholic Christian churches, like Protestants and others, have the same commands, but they arrange them differently. And then the Jewish people, to whom this, these are their scriptures, this is their national story, Judaism, they have the same list, and they number it a little bit differently yet. And that's true. You should know that. It's, it's interesting. Now, it's the same command. Some just put these two together as one. Others take these uh, these. Uh, one and make them two. I mean, it's just, it's just a little bit of a different numbering, but it's the same stuff in all three sets. And we won't number them, but we'll read the Ten Commandments as given in Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse number one. That Then God gave the people all of these instructions. He said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt from the place of your slavery. Now, right at the beginning, God reminded, by the way, nerd thing, um, that right there is actually the first commandment in the, Jew, in the Judaistic set of the Ten Commandments. That's the first one. That's not on our list that way, but they're all different. But anyhow, it's just interesting there. Um, what this points out to us is that God said, before I gave you any rules, I first established a relationship. I led you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. I did miracles for you first. And then, once that was established, you were cared for, I said, here are some rules. And that priority of relationship over rules is a great principle for us to take from God in all of our relationships in life, especially as parents. It's amazing teaching. But moving on. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 3. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. Now, in that set of verses right there, Protestants say there's two commands and the Catholics say that's one command and the Jews say that's one command for different reasons. But ultimately, it's all the same thing. Don't make other God, don't have any other gods before God. Don't worship anyone else but him. Don't make idols and pray to them or worship them. 
It's just a very clear, put God first. And this is a big idea because getting this first is what's gonna help the people do the other stuff right towards each other. Because in other religious systems that the Israelites were moving into, there were religions where people worshiped other false gods that caused them to offer sacrifices of their children in, in fires and all sorts of stuff. It was just mistreating people was part of people's religion. And God says, if you'll follow me, we'll do better. So put me first and keep me there. And then he gets into the next one. He says in verse seven, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. And many of us, we hear that, we think about like profanity or using God's name in like a cursing sense. And that's a fine application. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's part of this. But this means something bigger than that. This refers to anyone who takes God's name for their own purposes, like God told me to do something, he didn't really, but I want to use his authority to justify my, my moves, whether they be evil, like the Crusades or fundamentalist extremism, or whether it's selfish to get my way, I'm going to use God's name for my benefit, whatever it may, may be, don't misuse the name of the Lord. That can mean a lot of things, but it's one of the commands. The next one is this, verse 8, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now there's several verses after this that explain that deeper. And I really wanted to get into that today to make a whole point. And then I practiced the sermon and realized I was gonna take too much time to do it. So I cut it. But let me just give you this quick overlook. The Sabbath day, none of us do this today. It's one of the 10 commandments that we all harp about. Oh, 10 commandments, none of us do this one. Some Christians call themselves Seventh-day Adventists do some of this stuff. But no one I know really obeys it. Some people tinker with it, but none of us do this. Not if you read the verses that follow it and the rest of the laws in the Hebrew Scriptures. None of us will do this. We, we have excuses as to why it's different now in Christianity, and that's true. I agree with that. But if you're going to play the game of obeying everything in the Bible as in the Hebrew Scriptures, then we're having a problem in the Ten Commandments already because none of us do this at all. Even in our modified versions that we justify, we ain't doing this. That's just a whole conversation that I've given a whole sermon to before. We don't have time for it today. Just wanted to point out to you that even in the top 10, let alone the 613, most of us don't think they're for us today exactly the way they are. Let's keep reading, though. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long life. Eric, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to go back to the previous one. The Sabbath. I have one more thing to say about this one. This is a good idea still. Whether we obey it as a law or not, you ought to build Sabbath rest into your life. The concept is good. To build sections where you take time off to rest is good for you, it's good for your job, it's good for your health, it's good for your mind, it's good for your land. It's a, it's a good principle. We don't follow it the way the law teaches, but we ought to learn its principle at the very least in our lives. Anyhow, moving on. Uh, honor your father and mother, then you will live a long and full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Moms and dads say amen. Kids say, I don't know, until they become parents someday, then they say amen again. Okay. The next four are stalwarts for a civilized society. The next four are so basic. In fact, I'll just put them on the screen for you here. The next four are so basic that almost every civilized society follows these next four. And these are the four that those, back to my rabbit trail, those religious people who say we're supposed to obey all of these Hebrew scripture laws because they're important, always say, if you don't believe that, then you're denying the importance of these four, as if these four were invented on the mountain of Mount Sinai. I got news for everybody here. Civilized societies before the Jewish people, before Mount Sinai and Moses, 
and civilized societies to this day that are not Judeo-Christian in their background have laws like these four. These are very basic common staples across cultures. Obviously, God included some very basic laws in giving his people the commands, right? Because you've got to have those big ones, those common ones. But he also gave some very nuanced ones that make sense. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. And others that were like, I don't know what to do with that. But these are basic ones everywhere you turn. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You can't lie about people to harm them or to get ahead of them or help somebody else. You can't lie. Now, these are common things in cultures everywhere you go. It's not like Moses was on the mountain saying, what's next, God? Okay, uh, honor your Okay, great. What's next? You can't murder? Oh, man. This is going to ruin everyone's day when they hear this. That's going to that's totally destroy next Tuesday for somebody because, man, we can't murder anybody now. You know, it's not like this was some kind of a, of a, a first-time thought. In fact, cultures everywhere, Judeo-Christian or not in their background and their, their ancientness, would agree, you know, can the government murder you? Or not? Or can you kill someone in self-defense or not? Those all things get debated in all these fronts. But these are common laws. But then there were some less common laws in the, in the commandments as well. For example, the tenth one gets uncomfortable for many of us. The tenth one says this, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, or donkey, or ox, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, some of the groups of people break these into two different commands or some of us call them one. Either way, it's a big deal. Now here's the deal. This one's a little harder to, to monitor because you can covet someone's stuff and have envy and jealousy and greed in your hearts towards other people and hide it. Sometimes you let it out and people might know, but we can kind of suppress this one. It's a little easier to keep under the wraps, but we probably all have been guilty of breaking this one at least one time along the way when you drove through that one subdivision or growled at your neighbor's new car or got upset at someone else's promotion at work or whatever else you want to call or stared at someone else's woman or man or whatever you did. And so the commandments, while some of them are very obvious for civilized culture and others of them, like the Sabbath day, we don't practice as it was taught. And the covetousness, which we fail at, but we believe is important at least, we all believe it's important, these were the top 10. And most of us, when we quote them, the ones we're more concerned about are ones that aren't even listed in here. There's nothing in here about judging other people's lifestyles, but we make a big deal about that. But we're very big about, you know, the Ten Commandments, even though we covet and we don't honor the Sabbath at all. But we shouldn't murder anybody, so therefore it's a big deal. Okay, those are the Ten Commandments. And I'm moving on and I'm shifting gears now because first we established that the slaves coming out of Egypt, this new nation of Israelite people, were given laws to govern their nation by in, their, in, in, in Mount Sinai as part of the Hebrew story and the Hebrew scriptures that we read today. Now moving ahead to the time that Jesus came, as we see in the Christian scriptures, nobody kept all of these, not even among the Jews, except Jesus, who said that he didn't come to destroy, he came to do the one thing that no one else could do, and that is to fulfill it. He basically fulfilled the covenant. It was an old covenant. He said, I'm going to fulfill the covenant that no one can fulfill so I can be a perfect sacrifice for sin. And then, as the book of Hebrews says, he made it obsolete by giving a new covenant. That's a very important understanding there. But no one could keep it. In fact, the early church in Acts 15 debated how no one could keep it anyhow. So why try to pass it on to non-Jewish people like you and me, right? That's the whole conversation. 
And so at one point, Jesus has a confrontation with people, and I want you to see it with me. In Matthew 22 and verse 35, it says, one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. Now, this is interesting. This is a person who's coming to Jesus as an expert in religious law. We all know people like that. They know all about the book, and they're, you know, and so they're experts. And they're going to come try to trap Jesus with a hard question. Here's their question. They said, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now again, this person's trying to trap him, but elsewhere, Jesus is given the same question by somebody who seems more curious. Kind of like, I couldn't keep all 613, I couldn't even keep the top 10. What's the most important one, you know? So, so what's the, and this person trying to trap him says, what's the most important commandment of the law? And Jesus is gonna answer in verse 37. He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And before anyone can say, okay, cool, thanks, and leave the room, he says, wait, I'm not done, I'm not done. He said, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when he says equally important, what he's saying is, this is not command number one and command number two. This is equal in importance and in, in practice. This is one A and one B. This is the same thing. These go together. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these, uh, the entire law, the entire law that we just were reading about, the entire law of the Hebrew people, and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And that's the truth. When you read all 613 laws, they can all be assigned to one of those two ideas. Loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength, or loving your neighbor as yourself. Even the Ten Commandments all deal, the first four deal with loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the last six deal with loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says this encapsulates, I'm gonna simplify it into a, a one with two parts command that summarizes the whole thing, and he, and he makes it plain. But even in Jesus' simplifying it, he exposes something very bad. He says it basically comes down to loving God and loving others. And in saying that, he exposes something bad in people who even claim to believe the law. Because people, whether they're religious or non-religious, tend to take one lane or the other as if they're separate ideas. Religious people tend to say, I love God. I got a good vertical relationship. So I don't, I'm not doing very good at how I treat people in my horizontal relationships, but that's okay. Because me and God are good and you can't say otherwise because you don't know, you can't judge me. Me and God are good. I got my religious trappings, so I, we're good vertically. So therefore, if I'm not treating you right, well, that's okay because I'm good with God and you're obviously not good with God. That's why I'm treating you that way. So I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. The ends justifies the means. And we've justified bad relationships, bad treatment of people in our families, our friends, the, our culture, because we're okay vertically is that we've separated these two ideas, and Jesus says they can't be separated. Others say, well, I don't care about that God stuff. He's just a narcissist. Anyhow, what does he think? Back off, pal. I just am a good human and treat other people well. And God was saying, listen, if you don't figure out how to connect with God and see his heart, you'll never, you'll always run into a roadblock of your own survival of the fittest mentality and how you treat people. You've got to put God in his place in order to treat people well. So love God. But if you are not treating people well but claim to love God, you're lying. Because that's how it looks. And he's exposing the hypocrisy of people who divided the vertical from the horizontal. 
And he spent his whole ministry poking that bear and doing something else that was pretty crazy. Jesus spent his time giving brand new commands. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you heard it was said in the law, but I say unto you, and his sayings always dealt with the heart usually, the heart. And in doing so, people would say, well, who does he think he is giving us new commands? We already have Moses' law. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And his answer would be, I think I'm God. And I'm gonna call my own death and resurrection and when I pull it off, that ought to steal the deal for you. And he did. But along the way, he taught these things and then the night he was arrested, the day before he was crucified, he shared one last Passover meal with his disciples and as they sat down to eat, Jesus established a new covenant. Again, because he fulfilled the old one. As Hebrews says, he put that behind us and he made a new covenant in his blood, which again would be heretical to somebody trying to build a religion on, on the nationalism of Israel. We do the same thing today. We build our religion and our nationalism together and it looks muddy sometimes. But that's not what the religion's about. And so Jesus says, I got a new covenant in my blood. And then he gave them a brand new command because he had the authority to do so. And here was his new command. And remember when I said earlier to you that you need context? Who was it written to and why? When Jesus gives this new command, it's followed up afterwards, after his, his passion, by telling his followers to go make disciples to the, other, to the farthest parts of the world and bring people into following him as well, which means that these commands that Jesus gave his followers are for you and me today. So this is our context. Here's his new commandment. John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, Jesus said, about to be arrested, about to be crucified. He said, here's my new commandment, my new marching orders. Love each other. And in case that seems soft and mushy to you, in case that feels like mamsy-pamsy, like love, soft skills, barf, Jesus said, don't misread it. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So in other words, this is not soft. This love is as tough as Roman nails and as hard as Roman steel. This is sacrificial. I'll show, I'm gonna show you tomorrow on the cross what this kind of love looks like. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And he's explaining what it looks like to follow him. And someone might look at Jesus and say, time out, Jesus. I, 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 I dig what you're, what you're laying down here, but here's the thing. You said that the entire Hebrew scriptures were summarized in love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't see you mentioning the love God part in here. I think Jesus is basically saying, because you all let the vertical be your ex excuse not to do the horizontal. So I'm telling you, I'm not going to say it that way. You want the vertical part? Here's the vertical part in that verse on the screen here. Just as I have loved you, the vertical part is realize how God has loved you. Have faith in that. And when you see that, now love each other the way that I have loved you. That's how it looks. And then he says this, your love for one another, there it is, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my followers, that you are my disciples. Not just then, but for all times as disciples are made of Jesus Christ. So we know the who is us, but why? Here's the why. Because if I love you the way that God loved me, it will prove that I love him. Well, I, wanna, I, just, I just love God. How do I know? 
This is how you know. If I, prove, if I love you the way that God, if you love others the way that God loves you, it'll prove that you love him. That's what Jesus just said in those verses we just read. See, what are you gonna do to prove you love God? What are we gonna do for God? Seriously, I'll give him some money. He ain't broke, okay? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll carry the groceries in for him because his back is sore. He ain't weak. I'll say things to praise and glorify his name. If you didn't, even the rocks and stones would do it for you. He's gonna be okay. There ain't much we can do for him. But you know what we could do for him? We can love the people that he loved, the ones he created, the ones he made in his image, the people that he gave his son to die for. We can love them the way that he loved us. And he said, well, that, Arlen, that's hard because people are difficult. I know. And that's what he did for us. He loved us when we were difficult and when it was hard. And that's the call, to follow Jesus. And that's how we love God. In fact, he says so a few verses later in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. What I'm teaching you to do as my followers, do it. So we go back to Christ's command in John 13, 14, uh, 34. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Did you know that in the Christian scriptures, which are our marching orders, this right here is the basis for every teaching in the Christian scriptures? They built it on the one another's that Jesus taught to sacrifice for one another, serve one another, love one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another, honor one another, so on and so forth. They would sometimes reference the Hebrew scriptures once in a while to illustrate a point or to add weight to an idea, but not as their basis point of authority. Their authority point in the Christian scriptures was Jesus' Jesus's new command to his followers, to his people. To love us. And it, and it kind of sums them all up, doesn't it? Paul at one time says, that's the royal command. If you, everything's built on this one idea here. So, you say, well, I don't understand. What about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength? And, and where's that in Jesus' command? Here's the secret. Ready? The Lord, the Lord loved us with all of his heart, mind, and strength. We see it on the cross. And he calls us to love each other the same way. So with that on the screen, I'm going I'm to wrap it up there, but I want to just, for today, what do I want you to know? Sometimes when I preach a sermon, especially when it's a mouthful like today's was, I sit back and I try to think, what do I want them to know and what do I want them to do? So what do I want you to know today? What I want you to know is that as we read the Hebrew history, the Hebrew scriptures and their story, that when they were brought out of slavery from Egypt, they were given national laws to govern them as a nation because they were never had to govern themselves before. They were slaves, now they were free. So the laws were given to create government sense for them. And though we don't, none of us even know what most of them are, couldn't quote most of them and, and don't practice any of them and don't think we should, unless we're trying to judge someone else for some reason, they, they were there for a reason. And there's many laws in, those, in, in, the, in many different categories. Just like we're a nation of laws today, as every nation is. And sometimes in America today, our laws become outdated. By the time Jesus showed up, they weren't observing those Hebrew laws anymore the way they used to. And today, we can see what people have laws that 50 years ago made sense that don't make sense today. And new technology necessitates new laws today. But it's the heart behind it. It's the, it's the reason, the why behind the what that makes the difference. But hopefully as we read these things, they become a good foundation. So what do I want you to do? 
Well, besides having more knowledge, I want you to have knowledge. I want you to read the Hebrew Scriptures. I want you to read these law books at least once in your life. Besides that, an understanding its value, understanding its outcome, and what Jesus came to do to fulfill it and then to give us a new covenant and new commands to live by, whether you're Jewish or not, whatever nation and time period you live in, what it looks like to follow Jesus, those are our marching orders. And they're simple in layout, but they're very complicated in execution. What do I want you to do? I want you to follow him. That's what I want you to do, to follow his marching orders. Check it out, and this is the summary. To, to believe that God loves you, that's called faith. That's called faith right there. Believe that God loves you, that's faith. And then to turn around and love others in the same way, that's called discipleship or following Jesus. We make discipleship a big spooky word. Practically speaking, it's following Jesus. To believe that God loves you, that's faith. And to love others the same way, that's discipleship. And it's not always easy. But neither was the cross. And yet, we've all been benefited by someone loving us that way. By God loving us that way. And by others who've manifested that to us, it benefits us. And what we should do today is pick up the mantle of following Jesus and pass it on.